let's say it's 7 p.m. and it's, uh, it's Wednesday night. That's when our, my small group is. So 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night. And I, I come in and I start to, you know, sit, gathering in, in person, let's say, for a small group time. And I just like walk in, sort of dragging my feet, and I find an empty chair and I sit down and I'm like, Ugh. you, because you're good people, you are probably going to say something like, how was your day, right? You're like, how was your day? Um, and if I said long, what would that mean to you? Would it mean that, that the Lord had repeat, repeated the miracle and the sun had stood still and there was more hours added to my day? No. Would it mean that everything that I did in that particular day took me a really long time to accomplish? Like maybe, but probably no. What I mean by that, what you probably mean when you've said the same thing, oh man, it was such a long day. What you normally mean is you can't even believe that the things that you did at 7 a.m., and the things you're doing now at 7 p.m. all happened in one day. Like, things just went on and on and on. Like, there was just so many things packed into a period of time. It's kind of unbelievable. I know you've had days like that. Hopefully you didn't have too many days like that this week. And traditionally, uh, in the church, when we, we look through, we're talking about the Passion Week is what we've been, working, we've been working through since the beginning of March. And this idea of having a really long day is Thursday. It's Thursday, okay? So we've started on Monday. We did two services on Tuesday. There was a lot happened on Tuesday. We talked about Judas betraying Jesus. That was traditionally talked about on Wednesday, though we don't know exactly when that happened. And here we are now in the Passion Week, or the Holy Week, on Thursday. Sometimes you might hear Thursday in this week referred to as Monday Thursday, not Monday, but Monday Thursday, because the word Monday comes from the Latin term for commandment, referring to Jesus at the Last Supper saying, a new command I give to you, love one another. So you might hear it referred to that way um, in some churches. And Thursday was a long day like no other before it and no other since. I don't know what your long days look like, but we're going to walk through one that was so incredible that it will sort of, I'm sorry to say, shrink everything that you have thought as a long day before this. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 26. If you have your device, you, of course, can open the YouVersion Bible app. You can find all of these scriptures loaded for you. If you go to more and then events, you can find this morning's service there live for you today. You can follow along that way. Or, of course, there's some Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. And, hey, if you're new here and you didn't know this already, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, just steal it. Like, take it with you when you leave. You're totally, we'll just replace it. We're very, very happy to do so. Uh, Feel free. Uh, All right, let's start in Matthew chapter 26. We have been in Matthew quite a bit in this series. There's all the Gospels have accounts of what happened in the Passion Week. Uh, They all have a bit of a different perspective on what happened. And so we're just, we're following a stream through the best we can to, to just grab a picture of what Jesus was doing all the way to the cross and beyond. Um. We're going to start, like I said, Matthew 26, verse 17. Let's read this first section together. The Last Supper. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? 
He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. So right from these first moments in this story, Jesus initiates. Jesus initiates. He isn't defensive or, re- or reactive to what's going to happen. Uh, we're really close now to Good Friday. We're really close to literally his moment of death, and he knows it. But in these moments, he's not retreating. He's not withdrawing. He's not just reacting. He is initiating. He knows what's coming, and he says, let's go make preparations. Let's, let's walk through these next things with intention. He prepares for the Passover. He doesn't, another gospel writer says it's Peter and John who he sends. So he doesn't tell anybody except Peter and John, where to prepare. Perhaps because uh, he doesn't want Judas to betray him prematurely. He knows the priests have a plot to kill him. He knows what Judas has done, what he's agreed to. He knows what he will do later that night. He chooses after supper to go to Gethsemane. We're going we're to read about that. Where he knew that Judas would find him. And he makes himself vulnerable. And he, even, even though his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, Scripture says... Jesus is not caught unaware or swept up in events that are beyond his control in any sense as this goes on, the long day. And I just, this is not here, I'm just going to sidetrack for a second and tell you that I do not care what is happening in your life. I do care what's happening in your life. I don't care, though, what's happening in your life in this sense. It doesn't matter what you're walking through. It did not surprise Jesus. Never, never. Nothing to do with my message. I just need you to hear me say that today. It did not surprise him. He didn't go, oh, no. Oh, well, let's figure. It's okay. I'm creative. Like, no. He knew. He saw. And he's already with you. He never left you. He's with you. Okay, let's just, we're going to, that's going to preach another day. Okay. Verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. You have said so. Can you imagine? Like, I, I honestly can't. I was trying to, as I was reading through these scriptures, the, the weight that would have been on Jesus' heart and mind. It does, it does say that he was troubled. It does say uh, in scripture that, that he, um, he, had, he did, he was sensing the weight of that. But to try to understand what was on his heart and mind, to be sharing a meal, think about this, with your closest friends and knowing that one of them had already taken money in exchange for handing you over to the religious leaders to be killed. And you're sharing a meal with him amongst the others. Like, can you imagine how heavy that would be? And knowing that you are hours away from, from your own crucifixion, like this just, it's just really, I can't really wrap my head around it, but this is what's happening in this scene. And most commentators made a note while I was reading through this that uh, the other disciples say to him, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Lord, meaning master. Judas says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi, 
Was that intentional? Maybe, maybe not. Rabbi is not an inappropriate thing to call Jesus, of course. He was their teacher, which is what that meant. But, but almost every commentator said it feels intentional that by this point, Jesus was not Judas' Lord or Master. He was just, he was there in that moment and he, had, he saw that he was a teacher, but not the Lord or Master, not the one to give his life to. So what Jesus here, uh, what Jesus says here might feel like it sets up a question, you know, like if, if this betrayal needed to happen so that Jesus would die as it was written about him, how can Judas be blamed for it? You know, like this idea that, you know, did he really have free will and, and all these things? We, we've been talking about this a bit in our small group too. What does that even look like? Why is it that, that this had to happen? Judas, did Judas even have a choice? But the reality is this, when you, you look at these relationships, you look at these people who had their own minds and their own wills, it's not that Judas didn't have a choice, he always did. It's simply that God uses the circumstances and choices in our lives for his purposes and his plans, he will. It didn't have to be Judas. That's what I truly believe. It didn't have to be Judas. God knew the choice, though, that Judas was going to make. God, because he loves us and gives us free will, allowed Judas to make his choice, and he used even that as sad and as dark as it was. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. When he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here they are sitting around this Passover meal. This is not new to them. The Passover meal was part of the Jewish tradition from the, like, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is something that they understand. They're sitting at this Passover meal, and um, it's probably a little different in, in the Jewish community now, but, but there are certain things, a certain liturgy, if you will, to the Passover meal, certain things you say, a certain order of events that you do things, and certain things that symbolize certain things that happen. And they were actually, of course, celebrating how the angel of death had passed over the houses of the Israelites as they were the, the last plague before they were set free from Egypt, and all of these things. There's so much in that. And so as they would celebrate, there was a, a, a ritual to it. There was a liturgy to it. They would go from this to this to this. And so Jesus would have interrupted this liturgy with what he said here. And it would have arrested their attention. When he interrupts and says, this is my body, they would have sat up almost certainly and gone, what, what's going on here? This isn't part of the, this isn't what we do at Passover. It wasn't part of the tradition of the meal. And they would have sensed something uh, significant was being said and, and demonstrated as Jesus was breaking the bread in front of him. And, and they almost certainly would have just really leaned in and tried to figure out what it was that he was saying. In Exodus chapter 24, uh, Moses is, is, is talking to the, the people of Israel. And he's giving them the laws and he's giving them a bunch of things that, that God had said for him to share with the Israelites. And, and it says in, in Exodus 24 that they respond with one voice. They say, everything the Lord has said we will do. Okay, and then, and then in response to that, Moses builds an altar and he sacrifices young bulls. And, uh, and they, they make a big sacrifice to the Lord. And then in verse 8, 
it says, Moses then took the blood of these bulls and the sacrifice, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you can absolutely see this reference in what Jesus is saying to his disciples that night. They would have understood it. They would have known that story from the Old Testament, and they would have heard it in what he said. Except he makes one very, very important change. He says what? This is a, the new covenant. So they're listening to him like, first of all, he's broken tradition. He's, he's adding something to the script of this meal that they're not used to. And then he's referencing something that they have known forever and ever. This is the new covenant. And Jesus understood the violent and sacrificial death that he was about to endure. He understood that his blood would be used to confirm or ratify a new covenant. What was about to happen was going to be so significant that it was going to overtake and replace the old covenant that they had been using to be, they, the, the, the Israelite people, the Jews, had been using to be in relationship with God for hundreds and hundreds of years. This was no small statement. And I can imagine the disciples sitting there. I mean, we're, we, we read these scriptures a lot. So it's very, it's not, it's not news to us, but it would have been news to them. And so you can imagine them just for a moment sitting around there, kind of looking at Jesus like deer caught in headlights. Like, what, what, is, he, what is he saying? Sorting out what, what all of this could mean. Because I don't fully understand it yet. Verse 31. Then Jesus told them, On this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. In Matthew's telling of this moment here, this conversation must have been happening as they were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because it says that they had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Oh man, I would love to sing a hymn with Jesus. Someday, someday we're going to do it. It's fun to sing with you, Adam, too. That was fun, but like, I really want to sing this hymn with Jesus. <laughs> And I want you to picture now that they've gotten up, all of these heavy things have happened at this meal. This question is in their mind. What is this new covenant in his blood? What is, what is going on here? They sing a hymn, which would, again would have been a traditional thing that they would have done at the Passover. And then they get up to go to the Mount of Olives or the Garden of Gethsemane together. And so in Matthew's telling, they're walking now together down the road. And they're having this conversation. Hey, just want you to know that you're going to all desert me. And of course, Peter's like, no, not me. So, Peter, shh. Just, you ever just want to say that to Peter? Oh, shh. It's so cringy. Like, you just, it's all, everybody knows what's going to happen. Jesus said it, of course it's going to happen. Peter. 
First we had the knowledge that one of them would betray Jesus, then the fact that Jesus would be broken because he's making that at the, the Last Supper, that around that table, his blood would be poured out, and then he's saying this to them. And I understand, if you were in that moment too, you'd probably feel the same, that you gotta break the tension. You have to say to Jesus, no, but we won't, but we won't. I understand why they felt like they had to declare their devotion. And honestly, Peter gets a lot of hate here. But I want you to just read again with me what it says in the very end of verse 35. And all the other disciples said the same. Okay, so just, Peter's a little bit, he, he's always the first. He's a little bit more, the most impulsive. But they all said the same thing. So they are all in the same Here, Peter specifically, though, learns something that changes him forever. Peter's story, specifically as the night turns into morning here, and Jesus' prediction proves true, is going to change something in him. Something significant is going to happen in Peter's life. He learns the alternative to denying Jesus because he does. Exactly what Jesus says he does. So he's learned that he's capable of denying Jesus, but he also learns in that moment, I believe, what it, the alternative to denying him, which is denying yourself. And I wonder if uh, through these experiences that Peter understood what it really was to mean it when you say, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Because in this moment he fails, but the next time it comes up, he doesn't. And he does die for Jesus. Earlier in, in Matthew chapter 16, <laughs> Jesus is asking them, you know, who does people say that I am? And Peter's like, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. I know who you are. And he's like, oh, upon this rock, this declaration of your faith, Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not. It's just like this amazing scripture. And then like four seconds later, Peter says something dumb. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. Like the same guy. I love this guy so much. And Jesus follows that up with saying, listen, listen. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. That's the line of thinking. And, and Peter hadn't put it all together yet, but you know that he does. He takes this moment. He, he fails. He utterly fails. But then when it counts again, he really doesn't ever deny Jesus. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so that would be James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from you, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. 
here comes my betrayer. Gethsemane means oil press. It was probably an olive grove that they were in. That's what the garden was. Oil press. And here in this place, Jesus' relationship with the Father was very, very clear. Many times in Scripture we're told that Jesus submitted to the Father, though he was equal to him, because him being fully God. Hebrews 5 and Philippians 2, for example, talk about how Jesus chose to submit to the will of the Father. And here um, there is just such a beautiful display of that honesty and submission and trust recorded for us to be able to read here. And when it says he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, it suggests a sorrow in Jesus in this moment that was so deep it almost killed him right there. Like it was just so heavy. Luke records that um, it was so, he was in so much anguish in this prayer time that he sweat drops of blood. It's not the fact that he would die that moved Jesus so deeply, I don't think. It was the kind of death that he was going to die. It was so crushing. Certainly the physical torture of, of crucifixion was on his mind. That would have been an awful thing to know that was coming. But knowing that he would carry the sin of the world and experience separation from the Father, feeling forsaken by him, was overwhelming for Jesus in a way that can't be described in words. Just consider for a moment how many sins you have committed in your life. Just you. Just you. How heavy have those things been to carry? How different did it feel when you were forgiven by Christ and those things were lifted from your life? Now consider that Jesus was carrying the weight of all of our sin for all of time, for all people. And the weight of what that would have been like, and he knew that he was going into crushing, agonizing, sorrowful to the point of death. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6 says. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. And here we also catch this phrase that's really important. Jesus says, not my will, but yours. No, that's not a small thing. And that's Jesus' conclusion as he wrestles in prayer. Even under the crushing weight of what is coming, it's often pointed out that in the first garden, Adam and Eve essentially were saying, not your will, God, but mine. This is the thing that we want. We want to just see what happens. We want to take this into our own hands. We want to be like God. And that choice of theirs turned paradise into a broken relationship with God and separation from him. But here in the garden, that original sin is about to be made right because Jesus chooses instead to walk in obedience to the Father. And so man has gone from Eden to Gethsemane, and now this prayer allows man back into paradise. Friends, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. And so today I've entitled the sermon, The Table, because that's where we started here. That's where we started. 
The Apostle Paul uh, tells us, this is kind of an interesting thing that we don't totally understand, but he tells us that sometime after he was miraculously saved on the road to Damascus, that he was taught by the Lord, he says. We don't know a lot about that. We have a little bit about what he says about it in 2 Corinthians 12. But when Paul writes to the church in Corinth about Monday, Thursday... Just going to throw that in there because you already know what it means, right? Totally fine, yeah. When, the, when Paul writes the church uh, in Corinth about this, he says he was given instructions about communion from Jesus himself. Perhaps in that encounter when Jesus was teaching him. And this is the passage, the one that he writes about this. Actually, no, we don't usually often read the gospel account. Um, we read Paul's, uh, Paul's account of it when he's teaching the church in Corinth. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you... Eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul received and passed on a part of the story that only Luke's gospel actually references. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus doesn't ask us actually to celebrate his birth, though we do and it's awesome. His life, his teaching, or his miracles, though we do and we should. All of those are incredible and worthy of being remembered and taught about and talked about and learned from. But Jesus himself tells us one thing, that we need to remember his death. And Paul adds that when we do, we are looking forward to his coming. So this very long day, this Monday, Thursday, we celebrate this and we understand the course of events so that we can remember it and proclaim it until he comes again. That's why it matters that we know what happened that night. So why are we called to remember his death and not the rest? Though we do, of course, remember the rest. But why did Jesus say this specifically? Maybe this is the most obvious thing I've said all morning, but I'll say it anyway. Because without what happened on Friday, every other thing he did wouldn't have mattered. A life well lived wasn't going to be enough to do what needed to be done for our sin. A good moral teacher wasn't going to be able to pay the price for the sin of the world. His life had to be perfect and in obedience had to be poured out. And so that's why we gather around the table. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life until death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then Hebrews 5 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. 
And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This table was the turning point. It was the beginning and the end of Jesus' life on earth. And so it is our joy and our privilege to, in obedience, consider the very long day and gather here as often as we can. I'm going to invite Adam to come and, and uh, yeah, and Leanna, the father-daughter worship team duo, which is so beautiful. So we're going to take a few moments here now and just consider again what happened on this Monday, Thursday, this very long day. Consider right from the beginning, I mentioned that all of this was intentional. None of this happened to Jesus. He walked in obedience in it. He saw it, he understood it, and he chose it. Didn't have to, he could have been saved from it. He could have decided that was too much, that the crushing weight of carrying the sin of the world was just too much, but he didn't. And so I've asked Adam to, just in a, as a reflection moment before we go to the scripture again, um, I want us to prepare our hearts for communion together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, After Paul gives the instructions that I've already read, he also says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. I want us to take a moment of quiet reflection here now. And I want to uh, challenge you to invite the Lord to discipline you now. To invite the Holy Spirit to show you the things in your life that are not pleasing to Him need to be submitted and to be brought into obedience to the words of Christ. This is, if you're a follower of Christ, this, this should be a normal practice for you. If you're just learning about Jesus and the gospel is new for you and all this is new for you, no problem. This is a great opportunity for you to watch and observe and listen and think of any questions you might have. I'd be so delighted or any of us would be so delighted to have a conversation with you after the service about what it all means and to walk you through any next steps you want to take. But if you have a relationship with Christ, this is your moment to say, Discipline me, Lord, here. Humble me, Lord. Show me the things that I need to lay down, that I need to confess. Maybe you need to confess to somebody else. You know that you can't just keep this to yourself, but maybe there are, there are almost certainly things that you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for so you can come to this table in a worthy manner, Scripture says. Off campus, I'm going to invite you to join us in this too and also to prepare your own emblems, your juice and your bread or your crackers or whatever you've got there that you can participate with us in just a few moments. So as Adam leads us, why don't we just, just, you can stay seated. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and teach you and show you and, and uh, 
discipline you in the way that it needs to be as we worship together.